Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. And our guest on the podcast today is Damon Gamo, who is the brilliant man behind the brilliant documentary 2040. He also created that sugar film. He's made shorts that have won Tropfest. He's an actor. But really, in recent years, he's become a profound spokesperson for Planet Ocean. Now, if you haven't seen 2040, you really need to do that. It's a documentary that you can now find and stream online. It's been shown all around the world. It's one of the highest grossing documentaries ever for Australia. And it really is such a critical film. It doesn't shine a light on the doom and gloom of the climate emergency. It shines a light on the solutions that are available now and can be scaled rapidly that could create a future for 2040, which we all collectively would agree and believe in. So we recorded this podcast over Instagram Live, and I've just got so much time for Damon and his mind, and together with his team of creatives, he really is someone who we need to shine a light on and support. In the podcast, he does give a bit of a glimpse into what he's working on at the moment and what might be coming out in the future, and it's all really exciting stuff. Thanks, as always, to our guests. Thanks to Damon. Thanks to you, our listener. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and please share it around and give it some love if you do. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, Tim Silverwood from Ocean Impact Organization here and very pleased to be bringing you another one of our going live with OIO uh, experiences. And today's conversation is going to be with the incredibly inspiring and informative Damon Gamow, who is the man behind what can only be described as a profound and impactful film. Uh, we're talking about 2040. I was just doing some research today and I, I realised that the film only came out in, uh, in 2019, which is uh, just you know, 12, 18 months ago, and my gosh, has it had an impact since that time. So I really can't um, wait to see where it goes next. And joining me uh, today, as I said, will be Damon Gamow. He's just accepted uh, the live and so should be tuning in very shortly. And there he is. Hello, my mate. How are you? Tim, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are more than welcome. I was just about to tell the audience that I'm... Uh, I'm tuning in tonight from Garingai country on the, on the northern beaches of Sydney and wanted to first uh, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, where are you tuning in from tonight? Mate, I'm on Bunjalung uh, Nation of the Arakwal people, so up uh, near Bangalore, sort of northern New South Wales. Uh, very, very lucky to be here for the last six months. I tell you, if you're going to get stranded anywhere during a global pandemic, it's this part of the world. <laughs> How's it coping up there? I understand that a lot of people have, uh, have headed to the beautiful hills and beaches of the Byron Shire and the northern rivers. Is it, uh, is it a feeling like a nice balance at the moment with people coming from out of town but also the locals? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're incredibly fortunate with, with our nature here and um, the ability to sort of go and immerse yourself in it. Um, especially, I mean, I've got relatives and friends in Melbourne. It's, it's very hard to talk about how it is up here with them because it's just like a different universe so there are some days where you wouldn't even know what's going on to be honest there's not really a mask in sight and people are pretty much going about their business so uh feel extraordinarily lucky in that sense um but still you know still uh, moments of reflection and people still i guess pontificating on what this all means and and what life might be like as we emerge from this um uh, i'm sure we can talk about that that uh, amongst all the pain we're being presented with all sorts of opportunities as well at this time yeah, I think that will definitely be a tangent that I'd love to take with you today. And I, I do note from some of your communications over the last sort of few months that, um, you know, there's definitely silver linings, but also lots and lots of bad stuff that's happening in the in the shadows of the COVID crisis. But let's just um, start with a little bit about you. This will become an episode of the Ocean Impact podcast. So I do like to, to go back to the beginnings and understand a bit about you, your career and What's led you to this point where you've created such a profound and impactful film in 2040, which came out in 2019? Uh, depends how much time we have. I guess, um, yeah, I, 
probably always had a um, a passion for things ecological, but um, it was sort of sitting back in, in my mix. I was certainly prioritising other things, um, which were mainly around ego and trying to prove myself in the world and trying to make it and succeed. And I, I chased the Hollywood dragon for a long time and um, I thought that that's what I wanted to do and um, really didn't find any sort of uh, happiness or contentment there. And so I guess when I was probably in my early 30s, um, just had a really good look at myself um, and the way I was interacting with people, um, women in particular, and even things around purpose and what I really wanted to do in the world. And, um, you know, faced them, probably had a few years there of really embracing my shadow and learning about all those parts of me that I'd, I'd run from. And once I sort of got through that, I, I guess I had a bit more clarity in space and then thought, well, okay, it's not about me anymore. I've sort of sorted that out. What contribution do I want to make? What, what in this, you know, extraordinary brief moment that we get on this earth in all the history of space and time, what am I doing with it? Am I just chasing this, this Hollywood dream or do I actually want to contribute in some way? So um, that was a, a big change for me. Meeting my wife obviously was a huge, had a huge impact as well. She's a, an incredibly radiant human being and I felt that when I first met her and uh, she really um, forced me and I chose to make some big changes because I, I really wanted to keep her and be around with her and uh, I knew that uh, I wouldn't last long if I kept up my old antics. So um, that was quite profound uh, an impact. Then I, I tried all sorts of spiritual tonics and um, meditation retreats and, and entheogens and plant medicine and read countless books and did workshops and, you know, just did the whole gamut. And um, I guess during that process, you, you learn a lot about yourself and what matters and what you want to do in the world. Um, and then obviously made the sugar film and had a lot of experience there seeing what impact film can have um, uh, on, you know, communities, people, schools, uh, politicians. It was a, a real eye opener in, in terms of the power of storytelling. Um, and then I just thought, well, you know what, I want to apply some of those learnings to the climate story because I thought that we, we, we were ready for a new narrative there. We just relied on that dystopian story of fear and depravity and sacrifice and the more I researched, the more I said, now this, this has to be a story about the incredible goal that lies on the other side of this crisis, if we can get through it, that, that we actually, for the first time in history, human race gets to fundamentally change how it interacts with each other and, uh, and all its living systems, although you could argue a lot of Indigenous were already doing that. But um, I just felt like this is an exciting moment if we can reframe it that way. There's obviously a lot of things to be done which we can get to, but um, uh, the last five years has taught me that we can do it. And we've got everything we need in this moment to turn it around. So I guess I just want to amplify those stories. Uh, I've got two daughters now. Um, but just more than that, I just, I'm just in love with, with nature. I'm learning more about it and the magic of it and the interconnectedness of it. And it really is absolutely sensational. <laughs> and, uh, if only we could get more people to, to, to learn that and start to do those deeper dives. Uh, I think they'll feel very similar and, and realise that all these distractions we're living with right now, all these narratives that we're battling, all this time we spend on social media and this tribal warfare of limbic hijacking, it pales compared to the magic that's beneath our feet or between our trees or between our animals. So if we can switch our focus and enough people to that, then I think we can get through this. So in that time when you went through your spiritual journey and you sort of close the door a little bit on that chasing the Hollywood dragon. What was then the moment that you realised that you were a storyteller and a filmmaker? Because were you already doing that when you were doing some of your acting? No, I'd always, I mean, I'm sure people can attest to the story that we tell ourselves sometimes is incredibly limiting and self-destructing. And I, my story was that, you know, you're worthless, you're small, all you are is an actor. You can never tell a story. You, you should just hide behind other people's stories. That's kind of what acting is in a lot of ways. Um, and I, the big turning point was actually one of my, my best friends was getting married and uh, he asked me to be the best man. And I thought, you know what, I, I want to do something really special for him here. So I actually wrote a song with another mate of mine and we involved 60 of our friends and we filmed this sort of 80s film clip and I wrote this rap as the best man speech and filmed it behind their backs over three months and then played it to him on the wedding and his, and his wife. And, and the, the response was just extraordinary because he, they didn't know we'd done this and it was such a joyous, playful creation. And 
that was the first moment I thought, wow, the, the feeling of, of providing joy for people and seeing, sharing that experience uh, through storytelling uh, was pretty magical and infectious. And then uh, I made a Tropfest film uh, a short while later and then that, um, I got into the final there and then the year after I won Tropfest. And so again, having, you know, being, experiencing watching a film with 200,000 people in a parkland and, and hearing their response in the moment was really beautiful. And I guess um, from that moment on, I thought, okay, um, what I do does resonate, even though it was a part of me that I'd tried to hide, which was the daggy, um, nature-loving um, eco guy, whereas I'd really tried to cultivate the, the, the smooth-talking actor guy for, for a long time. So that transition was a bit clunky um, to, to embrace that. But um, once I did, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love what I do now and um, can't imagine ever acting again, really. I, I really get fulfilled by this work. So it's one thing to make a funny, quirky music video for your mate's wedding and another thing to make a successful Tropfest video, but you talked about the Sugar film before, huge budget, incredibly powerful film. That's a huge step up. And then was 2040 a natural progression or was it even a, a bigger leap for you and your skill set that you were harvesting? Yeah, I, I guess... Um... Yeah, what I want to say here is that even with the Sugar film, even though it was a set up, step up on a bigger budget and I had fears around it, what I learnt there was that um, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to know it all. That if you surround yourself with the right people with incredible skills and you set an intention, a strong intention of what you want it to be, um, if it resonates, people will come on that journey. So, you know, we had amazing cameramen and set designers and and all these people that you surround yourself with. And so the collaborative process of making a film is just magical. And I remember the cameraman even, because we shot, we filmed um, Hugh Jackman and Stephen Fry with a sugar film. And I remember the cameraman during the Stephen Fry, I didn't still know what lenses were on cameras or how it all worked. And he said, how can you not know? When we're filming Stephen Fry, like how can you not know uh, about the camera lens? And I said, well, that's your job. That's why I brought you here because you, you've got those skill sets. So, I learned there that you don't have to know everything. And that was stopping me to begin with. I thought that I had to have everything covered to even, you know, give it a go. Um, so, yeah, 2040 was then a step up. It was probably double the budget, double the VFX. Uh, the challenges were that there were a lot more people involved. Uh, Sugar, I sort of got to tell my own story. And I, and I did with 2040, but I didn't want it to be my version of the future. I didn't want it to be a middle-class white guy's version 2040. That's the last thing the world needs in this moment. So I really did open up and collaborate with a ton of people around the world from different groups, uh, different um, professions. And that has its own challenges because, you you know, it's your, it's your baby, it's your vulnerability. And when you're sharing it with so many people, they're, they're coming back with their thoughts and, and feedback. And that can be pretty confronting sometimes. But it really, I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to make sure that it felt like a collaborative effort and it was a response to what the children that we interviewed around the world had requested. So um, huge learning in, in, in both films. But, yeah, 2040 was a beast just trying to coalesce all these different issues from agriculture to transport and energy and girls' education, how to condense them down into a neat 90-minute package but still uh, have the depth, nuance and complexity that, that a story like that requires. That was a, a big uh, uh, craft to put that together. Has it blown your mind i mean obviously you put so much of yourself and this incredible team and everyone who backed it came together to make it so successful but now after must be getting close to two years since you completed it or however long since it's been released are you looking back and still just blown away by the impact it's had uh, i'm not very good at that my wife would so he would say that that's something an area that i need to improve at is that i'm uh, i don't reflect enough and sort of take stock and 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 probably could do more gratitude lists i sort of have a tendency to sort of barrel on and go right that was that what's the next thing and as you know the urgency of the moment we're in i don't feel like there's any time to dwell on on self-congratulatory back patting it's like just got to get on with this and and you know we can talk about the announcement yesterday with gas and all this i mean there's just that we're just constantly given obstacles at the moment to try and heal this planet so um i feel like i, I yeah i'm not sure that i'll ever celebrate uh, unless we get to 2040 and we start doing some of these things. But um, this will be something I'm, I'm passionate about and work on for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the community more than anything, of, of the people that have 
supported us and brought to life a lot of these actions and the response we get and the school kids especially that write to us and and how excited they are by solutions and, and what they want to do with their careers moving forward um but yeah I, I probably could just take a few deeper breaths and and, and acknowledge that it's been a great journey yeah you certainly could and uh, i know it's hard sometimes when especially when there's so much else going on and you feel that sense of urgency and responsibility. But do you, do you know some of those impact stats? I mean, where it's been seen around the world, some of the numbers, are they seeing some stats that you have uh, available? Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing we've, we've done recently on a website is we, um, we feed back that data to our community so they can see what achievements you know, they've done. And, um, you know, there's, there's different metrics, I suppose, in terms of box office and, and whatnot. That's been really great, especially in Australia. We just, you know, we, we're in, in, in some of the, one of the highest grossing documentaries of all time here. Um, but then we've released it right around the world now. We just released it in America. We've still got China and Russia and some other countries to go, but most of Europe have seen it. Um, it's about to start on Netflix in Europe as well. Um, and that's been good. But really, the bit that lights me up is, you know, the amount of companies that have done screenings and we've gone in and presented and had really good chats with some really heavy-hitting companies, uh, governments, uh, world leaders even. We screened the film at the UN Climate Action Summit last September and they mapped the film to the walls of the General Assembly and that was, I must admit, quite a, you know, I felt quite emotional actually there. It was the same day that Greta stood up and just sort of said, how dare you? So that was the, the same morning as that they showed, you know, some of the film in that room. Um, but it's more the action campaign. You know, we, we've had a million kids have now been taught the curricular materials in Australia. 25,000 teachers have downloaded the materials. Um, the seaweed platform is getting built down in Tassie um, uh, with the University of Tasmania. The amount of farmers that have been helped, uh, the amount of people that are mentoring girls online is, is just lovely and donating to, to, to female education and empowerment. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's beautiful, but that's, you know, that's not us per se. That takes a whole community and that takes a group of people that care about this stuff that just didn't know where to channel their energy to take action, uh, which has, again, been so lacking. We just scare the shit out of people and we overwhelm them and they feel so hopeless and, and like there's nothing they can do. And that paralysis um, is now um, quantifiable scientifically. That's what happens to our brain when we're only telling these negative stories. So I think we've got really strong evidence now that we need to be really careful with our storytelling and strategic and start to inspire people um, not shying away from the reality of what's required, but start exciting them by the possibilities that lie on the other side of this and, um, and, and motivate them by showing what other great people are doing. Is that, you know, it is to me, but that's the real point of distinction, I suppose, with 2040 in that it did walk this beautiful line between the severity of the circumstances that we're in, but it did paint the lens of, what the future could look like. Did you know right from the beginning that was the arc it was going to take or was there a moment when you realised um, that it simply had to be that line? No, my frustration often with documentaries, and I love documentaries, watch as many as anyone else, was that invariably we've fallen into a pattern where you might get 89 minutes of the doom and gloom and how bad things are. You might get two or three minutes at the end that says, hey, but do this and try this and do that. And that works for some documentaries, um, but I think especially in the climate space, that's kind of been done. And sometimes, I guess, you know, we're all busy, we're juggling life, we're juggling kids and responsibility, and it's a big ask to then ask people on a Tuesday night after work to sit down and, and watch a film about a dying planet or how many animals we're killing or the reefs dying. I mean, it's important, but bloody hell, it's tough. So I guess I wanted to just try something and say, look, how about we... We still share the problem, but we put it within a solutions framework. So you might have the first five, 10 minutes setting up the problem, but the rest is actually about solutions. So you flip the architecture of, of the way you tell the story so that people leave going, okay, we're aware of what needs to be done, but wow, it's so good to know there are things we can do. Uh, and I just think we need to do that a lot more often because we're just bombarding people. and. Most psychologists will tell you there's, we have this window of tolerance as human beings. There's only so much we can take before we just disengage. It's too hard. It's too, you know, I've got too many other things going on in my life. I can't, I don't have the capacity to deal with that problem, uh, especially when we can feel so hopeless around it. So, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, we need to be careful with our storytelling. I particularly imagine that was the case when you talk about it being seen at United Nations or when you see it in a boardroom or in front of politicians, right? Because 
a really strong stamp that the film uh, cements is that these solutions and these innovations, they're here and they're ramping up at the rate of knots. Which side of history are you mm. going to be on? So maybe we could use this as a bit of a segue into some of those innovations that the film uncovered uh, or that you've uncovered since the film that are really firing you up? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. The, the film was a lot longer. I mean, we had to get it down to 90 minutes, but it was, you know, three and a half hours initially. And there were lots of things that reluctantly had to be left out. And then obviously in the, in the two years since, I mean, I, I've, I spend my time immersed in this stuff and, and see new solutions all the time. I'm, I'm working on a project with Paul Hawken who wrote uh, Project Drawdown. His next book is called Regeneration and it's 80 more actions and solutions we can do. And I mean, it's just extraordinary what people are doing at the moment around the world. I mean, our mainstream media gives them no spotlight, uh, which is part of the problem. Um, but there is wonderful things going on and people taking incredible steps to turn these things around. So. Um, if we look at the film, for example, um, the energy sector that's just come along so way, so far since we've released. I mean, uh, the microgrids that we showed in Bangladesh, they're now in 33 more villages around Bangladesh, not to mention Africa and India. Uh, we're seeing them now implemented in Australia and other regions. Um, and even though we're not getting the leadership we need at a federal level in our country, uh, the states are really uh, getting on with it and doing some wonderful things. You know, South Australia is going to be 100% renewable before 2030. Uh, Tassie, 200% uh, by 2040. Uh, we've seen New South Wales and Victoria recently announce huge rene renewable energy zones. So um, there are things shifting there and even globally um, of all the energy capacity that was generated last year, 67% um, of it, new uh, energy, uh, was solar and wind and only 25% of it was fossil fuels. So there is a turning point. There's a long way to go um, and there's still a lot of things need to be done and we need to send the right signals to investors and whatnot. But um, there's momentum, especially in the energy sector. Uh, more concerning is probably, you know, people, I think, think that if we just go to renewables, we're going to be fine. Um, but electricity is really only a third of our emissions. We've still got transport, we've still got agriculture, we've still got industry, and they are very um, big polluters. Um, so I think it's important to say, you know, we need to transition as quickly as we can to electric cars. And again, that is happening, I think, um, es estimates I spoke to from experts say Australia is likely to be around 75 or 80 percent of new cars will be electric by 2030. That's how quickly it's going to change in the next few years. But the price is coming down. The government have recently taken the luxury tax off, so that's going to accelerate. Um, and then really the ones I get lit up by are the biological solutions. So when we start working with nature again and the magic starts to happen and sort of the regenerative agriculture there, you know, that is just um, racing ahead. Farmers right around the world starting to, to switch to these practices and put that soil back, the carbon back into the soil. Uh, seaweed, there's an Australian Seaweed Institute that's about to launch, um, which is pretty exciting. There's, there's probably six or seven projects happening right now. There's a, a large scale one's just been announced in Port Lincoln as well to grow asparagopsis, which they feed to the cattle, uh, which you probably know a lot about. Um, so that's just what we've covered in the film. But beyond that, there are just, you know, people are being forced in this moment to innovate and come up with new ideas and um, there's amazing things going on. McDonald's just ordered millions of new uh, straws made of seaweed plastic that, that dissolve in warm water. Um, you know, we've got libraries of things popping up in communities around the world so people don't have to have individual ownership of lawnmowers and crock pots and drills and stuff. They're just sharing them in their communities. Um, I could talk for an hour on this stuff. Um, so I, that's what gives me hope is that... Um, you know, we've got a big system to change, which is, the, which is the big, tough, challenging part, but all the seeds are being sprinkled around. And it might not happen in a hurry, but those seeds will grow over time. And like any great change through history, it's never been linear. Uh, there's a build-up of momentum that happens, and then there's a turning point that no one expected, whether that's Rosa Parks on a bus or, or the abolitionists. And I'd say that we're going to hit that turning point um, sooner than we think probably next two to five years, I think there'll be a, a momentum shift. And, uh, and when that does happen, a lot of these things will move through very quickly. Is it easy, and thank you for that um, great explanation there, is it easy to start to isolate what are those catalysts for such a movement? I mean, inspiration and using creative storytelling and new media to get the word out to inspire people. You mentioned before the innovation and the investment that follows. Like, what do you see as some of those key areas where we can rapidly create that, that shift that you're talking about? 
all of them, but the biggest one is the weather. And I think that's why the climate movement will be the greatest movement in history because of the weather. It's going to keep happening and it's going to dictate the change. And we're seeing it now, the floods, the fires, like these aren't going to let up. And it's very hard to be a denier when that stuff's all around you. And it's very hard to be a government when all that stuff's around you. So that's why I have faith. So what I do and what other people do, Paul Hawkins says this, is that we are rehearsing the future. There will come a time when people finally go, oh, shit, right. But what's happened through history is if there's nothing there in place, a vacuum creates and that's when more chaos happens. So all this work we're doing now is preparation for when that moment does come and people go, right, what can we do? Here you are. Here's a suite of tools that people have been working on for 30 or 40 years. Now's the time to implement them. So that's what keeps me going. Even though I have days of intense frustration, I want to bang my head against the wall. It's understanding that the moment for these might not be right now. This might be the most important work I've ever done in 10 years from now. I just don't know it yet. But just keep going, keep finding the solutions, keep putting them out there, keep trying to share those stories. And when that moment comes, that we'll be ready. Mm, that's so true. And unfortunately, those of us that, you know, we don't need to predict the future. It's, it's been written and the science is in and so compelling that you just want to see that action happen sooner because a small bit of action now can alleviate a huge amount of pain after the fact. But I suppose that, again, just brings it to, sure, we will wait and we will, uh, you know, react based upon the impact of the weather. But what are those steps that we can do just to further the, the story now? And, again, it's back to the work that you're doing. Yeah. So what are you doing on a, yeah. on a daily basis then now? I mean, obviously, this film is still you know, it's still having a huge effect. As I said before, it's being released on Netflix in Europe. But what does a day in the life of Damon look like in this, um, mm. this current time? Before we get to that, I will clarify what you just said then. And I think it's a really important point um, that in no way is there a waiting element for what's going on. There's such an urgency that these things all have to happen concurrently. We have to be preparing for the future, getting the solutions ready. But in this moment, we've got to put all the pressure we can on our decision makers because, I mean, I, as we've learnt yesterday with this, this decision around gas, we're not going to get there in our current form of democracy. You know, Australia had virtually no lobbyists in the 1980s. We now have more than 5,000 in Canberra. Until we get that level of political manipulation, that kind of money out of our, our governance, we're not going to get there, especially with this current government who are so in bed with the fossil fuel industry that Morrison has revealed his hand yesterday more than he ever has before. You know, like the fact that engineers, investors, scientists, everyone is saying gas is a terrible idea and he's still choosing to do it has revealed his hand. So I don't for a second want to um, give the impression that we just sort of sit idly and prepare and wait for the moment. We need all these things to happen at once. And some people are going to be suited to more than others. Some people are more pacifists and they can just work on the solutions and get going. Others are out there on the front line sort of yelling and screaming and that's great. We need everyone in this moment and there's no right or wrong way to tackle this. So I just wanted to articulate that. Um, my day is spent um, uh, on Zoom a lot. It, I've said it before that if there was Zoom frequent user points, I would have access to the Zoom lounge. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not proud of that. Um, too much Zoom. In fact, my eyes have gone in the last six months. I've gone to the optometrist and I need glasses to read now. And she said it's very common. Um, oh, I'm doing a, a couple of things. One is this bigger project with Paul Hawken and um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jane Goodall and some other people, and it's building a bit of a, a network for these stories. So we're not trying to squeeze them through um, mainstream narratives that have vested interests in, in, in an old paradigm. We're trying to build a whole new network to share these stories and get people to discuss them and, and amplify them. Uh, and in Australia, I'm doing a project um, with a few different groups where we've gone around the country and done a listening exercise to different groups, bushfire communities, indigenous groups, tradies, all sorts of people, and ask them how it's been for them in the last six months, but more importantly, what kind of Australia they want to see emerge from this, on the back of it. And then we've taken all that listening, and I'm doing like a vision piece, much like 2040, but it's a, a 2030 film, a much shorter film, but again, just telling the story and showing the vision of what Australians want. And What's been so beautiful about that is to hear how many things we have in common. I think people are going to be shocked when they hear, you know, conservative uh, presidents of the gun club in, in, in rural towns talking about Indigenous knowledge and embracing Indigenous wisdom. 
or people wanting the hills greener again and the rivers flowing and more action on environment, even from areas you wouldn't expect. So um, that's really interesting. It's a big challenge, but it's, it's very exciting putting that together and uh, I'm, I'm sort of recreating it as a news a news story set in 2030 that looks back at the decade that was. So we're using journalists and news anchors to recreate news footage and, and make it feel very authentic so people can see themselves in those scenarios and those news events uh, and think that'd be great. Let's, let's get on with that and do that. That sounds fantastic. Uh, do you know what platform that will be uh, screened on as yet? Yeah, we, we're sort of, I can't talk about it too much at the moment, but there are, it'll be sort of done in a multiple different ways of, of, of screenings and, and online and yeah we're, we're really trying to get it out there. Great and that's obviously off the back of the ABC which is a major broadcaster in Australia fight for planet A which I saw on your socials you were pretty keen to you know keep the conversation going on some of those awesome themes that, that series touched on. Yeah I mean gosh any, any kind of mainstream platform I mean this is the extraordinary thing isn't it that we we're in the middle of this of this absolute climate crisis and we're still so reluctant to talk about it and you know we don't even link it to our weather reports you know so anytime some kind of large platform starts sharing this these stories I, I you know we have to celebrate them um even it's funny been having a chat with some networks in the us and who really love the film 2040 but it's extraordinary how they just say look you know our, our president just doesn't want us to touch climate change it's too political we can't go near it we can't even talk about it it's just like while the planet burns we're, we're too scared to talk about the things that are happening right around us it's it's extraordinary mm. i saw on some of your um social channels you were having a bit of a um you were opening up around this you know, the information ecosystem and what's sort of happening now, particularly in COVID where people are getting their news in silos and following the pack without taking um, those necessary steps to really understand and do the work themselves to understand the, the narrative that needs to be told there. I wouldn't know if you wouldn't mind uh, opening up a little bit about that and, and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that... Um that our, our, our information environment is as polluted as our ecological environment. And that is causing all sorts of dilemma around uh, collective decision-making, uh, shared truths, and that's how democracy works. So if we can't have consensus on major issues like climate change, for example, then we're in serious trouble. And there was a historian, John Glubb, who, who looked at this and tracked the demise of all great civilizations. And he found that things really started to unravel when societies lost that sense of shared truth. And I get scared of that now, especially in this moment, in this pandemic, where, as we've realised in Australia, humans in general are not very good at uncertainty. This is why we, people stay in abusive relationships. We stay with our addictions. You know, we'd rather stick with something we don't like or isn't doing well for us than embrace the unknown. And so in this moment, we've just seen all these stories uh, proliferate, uh, understandably, um, but all the stats around, you know, outrage being spread far more easily, uh, easy than, than truth, we're seeing it right now, that people aren't taking the time to stop and question where that source came from or um, maybe fact check it. They are overtaken by an emotion that wants them to share this with everyone else and so they'll flick it on. And like a virus, that can spread very very quickly and can infect a population and then can cause all sorts of um, pain to the host so um, it's not to say that everything's wrong and in this moment more than ever we need to be aware of the complexity of this moment and how many things just people aren't certain on and even virologists and even immunologists are vacillating with this virus that doesn't necessarily mean it's conspiracy it just means that maybe we don't know sometimes in a society we've built when we want certainty on everything and we want quick responses immediate gratification some things are bigger than that and some things take wisdom and complexity and nuance and i just think that this is what i guess the most concerning part of this time has shown is that as humans we're getting worse at that and the system is only getting more complex, whether that's weather, climate, more pandemics. We need to have an awareness of everything that's going on. Um, and yet our tools of communicating are ill-equipped for that. They just give us short bursts 
um, that are doing us no good at all. So I know and have spoken to people that are working on this and trying to come up with new platforms and new ways of engagement, and some of them are quite extraordinary, but it's going to take a while, I think, to transition to that, and we're probably going to have a lot more pain um, uh, before we go, go through that. And I would encourage everyone, if they haven't seen it, um, uh, the film Social Dilemma has just started on Netflix with Tristan Harris, who's a, one, of, one of the great minds, really, around this stuff, and he worked in Silicon Valley for years and, and had a bit of a conscience and really talks very candidly about what they created in these tech companies. And they interview lots of people in that film who invented the Facebook like button and Instagram. And they really, you know, it's quite revealing and damning um, what they talk about. None of them let their kids any, anywhere near this stuff. So it's a good film to watch with your children if you have and just to watch in general if you're a concerned citizen. And, and for me, it's, um, it's the correlation with nutrition and food is, is very apt that, you know, we've got to be so careful about the foods we put in our body. Um, some can nourish us and some can be toxic and it's the same with our information. We need to be very selective about the information we're feeding ourselves. So aside from watching that new documentary, which I'll certainly be checking out, um, what other advice or calls to action would you put out there to people just to be alert to this and, you know, trying to contribute to a better outcome than a worse outcome? Yeah, I think it's important that, that uh, we are living in an age where we're all our own self-publishers. And so we all have a responsibility that what we are sharing or putting out there or writing is contributing to a collective hive mind. And especially in this moment, it, you know, for me, it's like, am I putting out something that's um, going to cause pain? Is it um, going to make people uncertain, anxious? Is it either, is it hopeful and uplifting? Is it educational? They're the choices we've got to make right now, I think. And to just be aware, just to be conscious of what you're actually doing. I think most people probably flick on and share or like something without even being conscious about it. And I think that's where the damage happens. So it's about just taking a breath and absorbing your emotion or observing it when you see something and not rushing to pass it on um, because some of that stuff can be toxic. And uh, right now it's it's more important than ever because we're not, we are our institutions. We've lost faith in these kind of institutions and rightly or wrongly, some of them are good and some of them bad, but what our media institutions have done traditionally is largely sort of vet and fact check stuff before they put it out there. And they're not doing that. Well, we're not doing that. And that's our responsibility. Um, and, you know, all these conditions that we worked a lot, so hard to, to, you know, whether it's showing kids certain commercials during their, their cartoons on a Saturday morning and whatnot, all that's out the window now. But we spent a long time deciding that wasn't healthy for the child. We didn't want that. And yet now we're just sharing things willy-nilly and, and our kids are being exposed to that. So we all have a responsibility there. Absolutely. Um, let's go back to, to seaweed, if you wouldn't mind. You mentioned before <laughs> that the Intrepid Foundation um, got involved with that seaweed project down in Tasmania and you said that that's actually now moving ahead. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of an update on that particular project and why it was that you were so passionate to cover the seaweed story in 2040? Yeah, I mean, seaweed's probably, for anyone that's, that's seen the film or has done a deep dive on it, it's, it's one of those just remarkable stories where you just have no idea. You just get surprised at how beneficial this, this very badly named organism is. I mean, I think if, if people understood how... <laughs> spectacular it is it certainly wouldn't have weed in its name but um you know that there are reading sort of reports of explorers especially in the u.s back in the day of reaching the, the west coast of, of america and just seeing literally kilometers 20 or 30 kilometers of seaweed out off the coast and otters and seals and fish and just like a forest imagine a dense forest on land but these forests of kelp out in the ocean alkalizing the water creating these thriving ecosystems and abundance and because you know our beautiful oceans absorb so much of our heat almost more than 90 percent um, a lot of the, the oceans have become marine deserts and a lot of those kelps are being wiped out we've lost 95 percent of our kelps in tassie all up the west coast you know western australia they've lost their kelps it's just you know another horrible story of climate change and I don't think people understand how important the ocean is. I mean, if really the, the ocean wasn't doing the work it's doing, we'd be, we would have been cooked a long time ago. It's, it's, it's an incredible organism that we should be respecting. Um, and so the beautiful solution here around seaweed, I met this 
physicist Brian von Herzen in Massachusetts and he's just an absolute seaweed nerd and, and has changed his whole life to embracing seaweed and, and I, I'm sort of an acolyte of his now. I, I can relate to that nerdism around seaweed. Once you start learning about the 14,000 varieties and the different flavours they have and the different components and how they've been used through history and um, the fact that they can be made into plastics and fibres and they sequester carbon and they're beneficial for our gut health and they help fish lay their eggs and it's just, it's incredible. So, but for our climate story, they are an amazing turbocharged sequesterer of carbon. Um, some of them can grow up to a metre a day and up to 50 metres long, some of the red seaweeds. So the goal there is that in the future, and we, that's why we're starting this research now, is that we'd be able to grow these giant kelp forests out at sea again and recycle the cold nutrients from the bottom and, and, and upcycle them to the surface um, to change the temperature of the water to allow the kelps to grow. And really we'd be able to sequester huge amounts of carbon there. Then you would harvest the seaweed, use some of it for you know, um, nutraceuticals or food or other things, but then you would let the seaweed um, drop to the bottom of the ocean and the weight of the ocean, once you go below a thousand metres, uh, that weight traps the seaweed on the ocean floor and it can stay there for millennia. So, and the oceans have an extraordinary ability to, to hold that carbon. So um, Tim Flannery says that the oceans are about 500 times bigger than the atmosphere. So even if we took half of the carbon that's in the atmosphere right now and put it in our oceans, we'd only increase the acidity by 2%. So it's not like we're going to be doing huge damage to the oceans here, that they have that ability to, to store this. So, um, yeah, so in Tasmania, basically, we did a crowdfund through our community, raised nearly $800,000, and we, and we started building this test platform. So the, the, they've been growing the kelps down there in Tassie now with the University of Tasmania. I've been down there. We've seen them in the water. Uh, they're absorbing some of the nitrates as they come off the fish pens there. Um, and the plan now, Brian's just built a platform in, in Singapore. I've just Sorry, in the Philippines. I've just seen a video recently of this floating pontoon with all the kelps hanging down off it. Uh, and he's got other projects going around the world. So... You know, fingers crossed, um, w w this is going to grow into something very special. Uh, it's going to be about a $25 billion global industry by 2025, a $30 billion actually. And Australia has all this water, but we don't have any large commercial scale seaweed farms yet. There's one in, 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 in Port Lincoln that's just been announced. But, um, you know, what an opportunity for Australia. Um, provide jobs, provide protein, provide all the nutrients that come from the seaweed. Uh, and we cannot start sequestering our emissions. It's, uh, it's a very exciting solution. That's um, a biological one. We're just letting nature do what it's done for millions of years and use that carbon cycle. Um, you know, it's nature healing itself. Yeah, and we actually, you mentioned uh, the Australian Seaweed Institute before, and we had Joe Kelly, the founder and CEO on the podcast, oh, only, only a week or so ago, we published it in conjunction with this report that she has put out with AgriFutures that shows it can be a, 1.5 billion dollar industry in australia by 2040 and you know it's only three million dollars now and like you've identified there's so much out there there's a lot of people in regional areas that could be uh looking at new jobs and new business opportunities around seaweed so we have the uh complete support of all those um great minds and people that are trying to frame this new emerging industry for australia yeah, no, Joe's terrific, and, and we've actually been working with Joe, again, on doing a visioning piece of, of showing people what it would look like uh, to have this seaweed at scale and, and what impacts it could have and, and, and to start showing that to governments and investors to really kickstart it and get it going. Nice one. I wonder if you wouldn't mind if we, um, yeah, tip the conversation around a little bit. Um, you know, we've interacted in the past professionally through my previous role at Take Free for the Sea, but with Ocean Impact Organisation, we are really about innovation and supporting entrepreneurs who have a vision for the future, which is, you know, regenerative and restorative and uh, want to use the power of good business. So I don't know if you had any sort of questions for me or had any sort of thoughts on what you've seen through your journey, particularly in recent years and with 2040 and beyond, about the power of supporting innovation and entrepreneurs to achieve great things. Yeah, well, I would say, especially in our country, that, um, you know, it's going to be up to those innovators and entrepreneurs that we're not going to get any help from the government, it looks like. They just um, have no interest in, in doing anything for the planet. We've seen that with the environmental laws that have been pushed through. We've seen that with the gas decisions recently. So, you know, this is the time for those innovators. Um, and so I guess we need the private sector to, to, to really understand, and a lot of them do now, the urgency of this moment and how can we support these 
you know, these startups and whatnot and start to shift that capital. I mean, you know, the pretty alarming stat I read the other day was that last year uh, we spent about $200 billion on investments globally on non-carbon polluting um, innovations, but we spent $1.6 on carbon polluting uh, innovations. So we've got to get that ratio. We've got to flip that really quickly. Um, and we need people with capital. We need uh, super funds to start investing in regenerative solutions. And some of them are, but they're still slow. And there's so much complexity, as you know. There's so many, you know, there's things bound up in this. But um, if we don't, you know, we just can't, we can't rely on the governments. We need the, the private sector to come on board. So I would ask you, like, you know, what do you say to young innovators who, who might be starting out, who might have an idea? Where do they go? Who do they connect with to see that dream realised? Because everyone's got a good idea, but what's that next step to start making it concrete and tangible? Yeah, well, that's really the reason that we established OIO was to be that galvanising body for people who do want to make a abundant and sustainable ocean. So that's our, our mission statement. And um, we're really now in our first program. So at this moment, until the 5th of October, people can apply to the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2020. Uh, we've already had a huge range of applications from startups around the world who are working in these six theme areas to create this abundant and sustainable ocean. And this is the first of many programs. So we essentially established because it didn't exist, this incredible network of marine institutions and researchers and the, the people that are out there all around Australia, there are the people with the skills and the passion to try and create this future that we all believe in but there just hasn't been that central body to support the innovators and the big thinkers and the disruptors. So we're really excited about our role here and certainly in the conversations that we've been having in the six months since establishing, you know, corporates are, impact investors are, a lot of people want to see us succeed and our goal is to accelerate 100 ocean impact startups in five years. So hopefully we can be a really powerful force to galvanise and create this new ecosystem. Yeah, congratulations, man. It sounds absolutely wonderful. And uh, let us know if we can help with some storytelling or, or come and film some of those solutions. Yeah, it's exciting. So essentially with um, the Pitch Fest, we'll know by the 4th of November who our winner is. Uh, we're going to be shining a light on the, the 10 finalists and we'd love to you know, look at all opportunities to, to get the word out because really it is about holding these individuals and startups in lights because... I really do believe, and this is actually, you know, a lot of the rationale behind this, what could seem like a bit of a bold shift away from that traditional non-profit, let's harness charity to right the wrongs on people and the planet to looking at, you know, good business, B Corps and impact-driven purpose-fueled businesses because if we don't, then we're going to be having this same conversation in a decade. Yeah, it's spot on, mate. We have this discussion as well. I mean, yeah. It feels like it's the argument between annuals and perennials. Do you want to? The annual is kind of like getting the, the handout from from the wealthy philanthropist, but you want to be a perennial crop, and you want to be sustainable. And I think we can be regenerative in our ownership and our finance and our governance. And you know, we don't have to have these hierarchical models of ownership anymore. We can have lots of people benefit from these social enterprises. And and I, to me, that's incredibly exciting. So rather than just crowdfund, can we equity crowdfund? And we did. In fact, we did that with the microgrid solution. Um, in Bangladesh with a group here to bring it to Australia. And they raised 800000 in three weeks. And that was equity. So people owning, not just donate, but they actually own that company. So if it does well, they, they benefit from it. So we get to deal with income inequality and climate change at the same time, which is just a no-brainer, really. Yeah, loving all these new models for the future and people being able to, you know, not just click like or donate some money from their monthly paycheck, but actually, like you said, become a shareholder and support this new and emerging sector. Yeah. Look, I'm really happy with this little conversation you've had today, mate, but I might give it, um, give it over to you for any sort of final words. Is there anything you wanted to talk about coming into this conversation today? And if not, just um, wrap it up with some closing remarks and where people can find out more about you. Yeah, well, thanks for the chat, Tim, and, and congrats on, on all you're doing. Um, I guess, like always, it's just um, trying to instill people with a sense of hope that uh, I spend nearly every day um, talking to or meeting people that are like you um, focusing on solutions and moving ahead. And there is an extraordinary amount to be excited about. And sometimes 
uh, like yesterday, where I had a moment where I was in tears for a while, just with, with the gas stuff, you can feel hopeless and you can feel really run down. But And it's important to acknowledge that because uh, when we do, we free up space to then focus on the solutions and move forward and don't feel paralysed by that. So I would just encourage everyone to um, to find the good and look for the people that are doing great things. Let that be your uh, information diet. That'll keep you healthy and motivated and moving forward and then get involved. Find that area that lights you up. What are you passionate about? Whether it's food or the oceans or uh, energy, whatever it might be, now is the time to sort of take that risk and, and, and find that thing that you love and go for it and contribute in whatever way you can because um, the earth is hiring and it needs foot soldiers. What a great way to close this chat. Uh, if you want to find information on Damon 2040, you'll find it online. Look, thank you so much for your time, mate. Keep up the brilliant work and we can't wait to uh, collaborate further in, in, uh, on our journeys. My pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Okay, see you later.